When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. It is Thursday afternoon and I just started recording these and all of a sudden I started hearing a weird sound coming from behind me and I realized my ceiling is leaking. So I freaked out, I shut off the water main, I opened up all of the other faucets and turned everything off to try to drain it out. So as you could imagine, I'm freaking out right now because it's leaking right over where you could see the stuff that I was able to move. It's not quite over where the CRT wall is. But the plumber's coming fairly soon. He said he'd be here in, in like two hours max. So uh, I'm going to skim through the rest of these because I have a feeling the next couple of days of my life are going to be pretty freaking brutal. So please cross your fingers and uh, and send your well wishes to my ceiling because I am terrified that in the midst of this, it's all going to come crashing down on top of the CRT wall. So uh, whew, I should have stayed in New York City. All right, let's 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 get back into it. First up, Earth to Brooks said they have an sRGB that they had built with an SNES multi-out that worked perfectly, except they had used a cheap S-video cable off of Amazon that seems to have shorted everything out. They wanted to make sure that they troubleshooted the issue, so they tried the same cheap S-video cable on their N64, and that shorted out too. So, a couple of things. First and foremost, take a pair of scissors and cut that cable to bits. A lot of people get really pissed at me when I tell people to throw stuff out, but you need to compare that to how many times I bend over backwards trying to tell people to save money or to save them to use it for something else. But I've been in this scenario multiple times where I've labeled something, this is bad, we'll kill your console, use it for parts only. Then the label falls off and I, most of the time I come close to using it and catch it at the last second, but I have done stuff like that before. So cut it into bits, throw it in the garbage. Also, thank you for once again proving my point about why you can't buy $2 cables. Sorry to to put that on your shoulders, my friend, but so many people get in these comments and they're like, oh, Bob's just an elitist piece of crap that wants everybody to spend $100 on a cable. No, I want to save you as much money as possible. I just don't want you to accidentally blow out your consoles. So what I think probably happened is exactly what Earth Brooks described in that the cable probably shorted to itself because it had no shielding on it. It's very badly made. Um, and it probably uh, did some damage to something. Now, as far as troubleshooting, N64 is easier. Leave everything unplugged. Unplug the power supply, unplug the power supply from the wall, and just leave it overnight and try it again in the morning. The Nintendo 64 power supply has a self-healing fuse, which sometimes works great, sometimes doesn't. So cross your fingers on that one. Uh, If not, if that doesn't work, I can't remember if N64s have those little fuses on the motherboard itself. You might want to check into that. SNESs definitely do. Now, on on the NES RGB side, that's when you're going to start to get a little bit complicated because what exactly shorted and what's the issue? Did the NES RGB board itself short? Did a power supply short? When one thing shorted, did it break something else? And that's when you're really going to need multiple multiple steps to troubleshoot. That's why a lot of modders I know have one of everything just so they could swap parts out to see what 
follows the problem and, you know, what doesn't. So, you know, if your CPU and PPU are socketed, you could pull those out, stick them in another test unit. If everything works, it's not those. And, you know, then pull the NES RGB board out, put it on another one. Does that work? Does that not? So that is that is pretty much, you know, that's probably going to be harder. You might end up having to go down those steps with your N64 as well, but I've had more luck with those. Firebrand X chimed in uh, and sound, said, sounds like maybe the power line and the AV is shorting to something. The very first thing they would do is use a multimeter to check all of the evil cable pins and wires for shorts and take it apart to inspect it to try to get the root of the problem. Yeah, I think I would do the opposite. No disrespect, FBX. I would cut that cable up, throw it in the garbage, and take every single... Well, you know what? FBX is right. It would be nice to know exactly where the short occurred so you could start tracing the parts down that line. But I think you're still going to have to start tracing components on the NES RGB board, to start at least, to see what ended up getting fried. Um, So this is not going to be an easy one. I would just be patient and test it as best as you can for now, and then you might end up looking up modders in your area that have a good reputation. And that's that's always an easy thing for me, is try to find people who have a lot of experience doing the thing that you need to do. So somebody who is, and, I, and I'm making this stuff up, by the way, but somebody who is a master at rebuilding Philips CDIs might not necessarily be a master at rebuilding broken NES consoles. So just try to look for somebody that has some experience in this, but hopefully you can get away with just replacing a part or two, but with the NES, you might be chasing multiple fixes. So I'm sorry to hear that that happened to you. Next, Durf wants to know if I have any favorite sub $200 power conditioners or power conditioner brands for analog audio or video. It's hard to find good info on them because there's a lot of snake oil out there. And later ones are designed with digital, not analog in mind. And there's so many factors like whether the units have an isolation transformer, balanced power, whether the old units will stand up, or if they're battery-backed, pure sine wave generators. From a few people they talk to, a good power conditioner can make a visible difference in pictures for CRTs and analog audio equipment. Some people say it doesn't matter if your house power is clean, but they personally have a noisy house with visual noise on TV when the AC kicks on, so they think it's more than just how clean the city power grid is. Uh, So you're right about absolutely all of those things. I had some power issues recently, and I had a ground loop hum that I had to try to hunt down, and coincidentally, I had an electrician come over to help me do something that I thought was going to be simple. My gut told me it wasn't, and he opened the wall up, and the light switch was run into a GFCI outlet that was run into itself. It's so dangerous. You're never supposed to wire stuff. And he, he just started laughing like, well, this is going to be an easy thing. Throw the outlet or throw the switch or throw the outlet away, keep the switch. And that's it. You can't do anything else. They wired this thing wrong. So I do think that some kind of power conditioning, if you have stuff that's important to you or expensive is absolutely a, a must. Um, however, how much you want to spend is is kind of something that you really need to think about. A friend of mine, like I mentioned, I think last week, has a multi-thousand dollar setup that's connected to his circuit breaker. So basically the whole pa- house now has clean power. Um, I've seen quote-unquote audiophile power conditioners for 10 grand that are that don't do shit. I mean, yes, they do, but the difference between a $1,000 one and a $10,000 one, you'd have to have a million-dollar stereo to hear a difference, if you could at all. You'd also have to have really good hearing. Um, so what I'd like to do is take Renee's advice, and, uh, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity for a cheesy free ad here. <laughs> um, 
go to retrorgb.link forward slash Amazon. Then scroll down to power equipment, and that's where all of the stuff that I use are. So the Eneloop batteries I like, uh, but specifically to this, I have, or I've been using this APC um, automatic voltage regulator box on everything that's important to me. So everything, in fact, my setup has a whole bunch of different surge protectors, mostly the same Belkin one that I show here. A bunch of them are run into that APC. And in, yes, I know you're not supposed to combine a lot of these things. However, please remember that I rarely have more than uh, I mean, more than a handful of components on at a time. You know, it would it would be uh, one display, the stereo, and a console, or instead of a console, it's a DVD player, an Apple TV, whatever else. So, really, the amount of components isn't as big a deal. Just check the specs of that APC box to see what the maximum load is, and then add up all the devices you're going to be having on at the same time and double check that it's below that. I always like to go far below that. So if it's a max of 1,000, I don't go to 999, I'll go to 900 or something. I'm kind of just making those numbers up, by the way, just to give an example. So that's where I would start. Uh, If you're noticing any differences, use it. But to be honest, I don't notice any difference with or without it, and I still like that I have it. And maybe, maybe Renee is just playing a joke on the world and has us all buy a $75 power switch. I don't think that's the case. Renee really knows power, by the way. But even if that was the case, I still like the peace of mind knowing that everything's put through a filter. And I do like the fact that if I ever needed to, I have one kill switch for everything. Usually I'll leave the APC box on and then just turn off two of the main switches that have all the power, you know, all the other power strips connected. But overall, I think that's a pretty good way to go about doing it. If you need backups, so like you have a server, you have a NAS, you have a router, that's when I would get a decent UPS with a battery in it. And the sine wave one that I use here seems to be good. It's 220, so it's a little more expensive, but I would use that for things like a computer and a server. To be perfectly honest, my router and um, wireless router and uh, fiber modem are connected to the cheapest UPS I could find. Definitely not sine wave, definitely not a good quality one, definitely not good power filtering, but all I care about with those two very low power components is that if the power blips out, they stay on. And if the power completely goes out, I could have a minute or two to finish a live stream, to finish a conversation, whatever else I'm working on. Uh, so that, you know, if, if everything else starts to go, at least I can keep those components on. That's probably not the best advice. I probably should be saying, no, you need good power for everything, but for just a modem and just a wireless router, unless you've invested in really high-end equipment, I would go with the cheapest to save you some money. But you'd, let's just say you built up a nice new computer, I would spend the 220 on the sine wave one. And just once again, uh, add up the maximum power draw and only connect that to it just to be safe. Computers are drawing a lot of power nowadays. So that kind of sums up the whole power section. Uh, the last thing Durf said was it would be cool to see a video with visual and MD Fourier comparison with different conditioners or going over the differences in those factors, what really helps, what snake oil, etc. I love that idea. That's going to be six months to a year away because I'm also working on a whole bunch of audio related videos that are going to take to the end of the year to release, if not longer, depending on what else falls on my plate. Um, but I would like to do that together. So after I have some solid 
audio suggestions for people. I want to take an average scenario where you hear a little bit of hum using an, you know, a cassette player, a good cassette player and a decent receiver. And then you put one of these in and you don't hear it anymore. So not only can I measure it with MD Fourier, but you could actually hear a difference. And same thing with visual stuff like that. I bet you if I used RF, uh, even though I'm in the middle of the burbs now and the RF looks great, I bet you I could show a difference. Um, you know, I could probably get a couple of factors involved in that to make it happen. So excellent suggestion, but that's going to be far away because I don't like to just do off-the-cuff videos. I like to do videos on stuff that I've either tested for a very long time or help somebody do a launch video. I think any reasonable human understands the difference between, hey, somebody just invented something new, let's take a look, and here's a deep dive test with strong advice based on a year of testing. You know, it's two two things I take pretty seriously. So that'll be a little ways out, but good suggestions. And I hope that my, my power recommendations make sense. If they don't, Please ask a bunch of questions, and if I don't feel smart enough to answer them, I'll see if I could drag Renee in or something for this. Kyle Duncan has been thinking about creating a retro NAS for their setup, and they've been wondering if there might be support for other consoles like the Wii in the future. What are the limits of what kinds of consoles it could support, and are there any features I'm hoping to see in the future? So that's an easy and complicated answer. It could support any console that supports streaming over the network or any kind of protocols that could be manually added to the retro NAS side, the host side. So for the Wii to use that, the people who create the Wii homebrew software would have to create a network option to stream the games over Wi-Fi or Ethernet. Now, in some cases, that's not quite viable. However, they're like the original Xbox, I believe, you're not quite able to do that yet. I think, I could be wrong about that, but you are able to do something like use the RetroNAS GUI interface to push your game to the Xbox. So you could use your keyboard and mouse and PC right through RetroNAS. You don't need to use in, you know, a different FTP program or something like that. So I hope that more people jump on board and add support for this because when I first did the RetroNAS launch video, half of the responses were, this is dumb, I could just share a folder on my computer, why would anybody do this? And those same people, three, four months later, I see posting on other RetroNAS videos like, this is awesome, I didn't know it could do this, oh wow, well, you know, so I think first and foremost, people have to start to really let it sink in and understand the purpose of RetroNAS, what it could do, all the different features, and then hopefully homebrew devs will start to realize what a massively important tool this could be, uh, especially once it's able to be installed on like NAS box devices and if there's an easier installation method for things like Unraid, which I've been running mine based on Dasutin's guide, uh, and it's been perfect on Unraid. So I can't remember why I haven't written that up on RetroRGB yet. That could be my fault. I could have dropped the ball on that one, but I think it's awesome. As for any features I'm hoping to see in the future, uh, there's a bunch of weird, like, heavy nerd-based stuff that I've been talking to Dan about, and maybe that'll get implemented at some point, but for me personally, the thing that I'm most interested in is having homebrew devs support it on their end. And then at that point, they can come back and say, okay, well, we've opened up network support for streaming these games, but it has to be in this folder structure, it has to be this protocol, and then, cool. Then the main RetroNAS team will take it from there and add that. Granted, it's much harder to do the first side. It's much harder to do the console end. That probably came out wrong. Now that RetroNAS has already been created, that is incredibly hard. But now at this point where we are, 
adding support for things like the Wii is going to be harder on the console end than it is on the retro NAS end. Yeah, I think that's fair. Sorry, I must have had too much coffee this morning. I'm I'm firing off these answers. uh, They're coming out a little too quick, but I think that should put everything into perspective for you. But I still would strongly recommend doing it because it's just a, a helpful tool that you could use for so many different things. And even having something like an always on network box, even if you have the same files on your PC, now it's just your backup NAS that you could also use for this stuff too. And eventually you might use it for other stuff, but I, I don't know. I think it's a pretty a pretty important thing for most retro gamers to have, or just retro nerds in general, I guess. The Remora is currently using Bridge Commander to switch the inputs on their Extron crosspoint switches, but they were curious if there's anything else that would work and also control the HDMI matrix switch and possibly also support their TV's IP control. The crosspoints don't have do not have network adapters, so serial is the only way to control them besides the front panel. Um, also, do I have any recommendations for both 3.5 millimeter audio cables and RCA audio to 3.5 millimeter cables? Uh, so, the second question is easier. Go to Amazon, buy the cheapest ones you could find that are listed as shielded. And if you get a hum or a buzz, cut them open and figure out what the issue is. When I say cut them open, these are $3, $4 adapters. So, you know, I'm not telling you to throw your money away, but if they work fine, great. If they don't, try to figure out why they're not working right and kind of go from there. Um, Those are luckily very cheap and I've had excellent luck with them. So I would just find the cheapest ones out there. If I could search my Amazon history, I'll leave a link to the one that I purchased last that seems to be fine, but you never quite know with those. Anybody could change their design at any point. So um, that's easy. The other side of things, I am just now getting into Extron cross points and control. Somebody was nice enough to send me one a few years ago. Just last week, I set it up for the first time and I'm loving it, but I'm already finding a whole bunch of things that would make the workflow so much easier if I could figure out how to get that working. So there's already a bunch of other Extron control projects out there. Some of them require you to plug a Raspberry Pi into it with a USB to serial cable and offer a ton of functionality Others are 100% network-based, but that's not a question I could confidently answer until I've really dug in and started using all of these myself. Um, I I think there's one project that's already out on GitHub that I might just drop in the, a, a link in the description. However, I haven't tested it yet. It's on my list of things to do this week. I'm so far behind, it's gross. But uh, hopefully I can get to that soon. But this is something I will be doing myself So that means eventually I'll have a video out on it because this is going to control all of the analog devices that you see on that setup back there. I'm hoping by, by the fall to have a video on, you know, on this setup and how it all works as well, just because I think there's been a bunch of people wondering how the hell I work all that stuff. And, uh, I think it'd be pretty interesting. So I'll leave a link to what I was going to be testing, but I think this is something that I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time trying to figure out exactly how to do a lot of what you're talking about. The only other thing to add, when you're talking about adding in IP control and controlling other stuff, that's when you start talking about home automation software, different protocols. There's tons of different devices out there that do that. And you could really, this is a rabbit hole that I don't want to go down yet. Um, And I'm not really sure if it's that, if it's the most efficient because, you know, try not to ramble on with this, but I was involved in a a company that did a lot of home automation stuff, designing the protocols, designing a lot of the work for it. And while the company that I worked with eventually perfected the workflow and it's pretty damn awesome, 
I was there for all of the origins of this stuff. So the like the best visual example is take like a Logitech Harmony remote and you want to set it to let's play a DVD. But so you aim it and you're holding it at your setup and then somebody calls your name and you turn around and you turn the remote and then only half the things that were supposed to go on came on because you moved the remote. That is a metaphor for a lot of what this control stuff used to do. So I have very bad trust issues. <laughs> and uh, for me personally, I'm going to stick to just controlling the cross point for now. But if you discover any cool things, let me know and I'll look into it as well. But just be warned that this could be a rabbit hole that you don't end up wanting to deal with. Okay, so now is the point in the video where I just realized that my ceiling was leaking. Uh, I also realized that one of the sections that I had recorded before, I kind of got something wrong. So I'm going to start by re-recording that one and then skim through the rest. No disrespect to anybody whose question I skip over. I'm just scared shitless that I'm about to lose everything that I worked for for all of my life. So uh, yeah, Whew. anyway, uh, Jacob Rice wants to know what's the best HDMI solution for the GameCube. At the moment, they're all the same-ish. They're based off GC Video, which is an open source platform from Ingo Corb. And the differences between them are really firmware and their execution. So you have the Insurrection Industries Carby, which is, my opinion, in my opinion, the best on the market. As long as you get the, the one with the latest firmware, all the new ones which are in stock are shipping with the firmware, uh, the latest firmware. You could upgrade the previous ones, but you might need a programmer. And then from this point on, you could upgrade with software. But it's plug and play. I know the team, they, they really bent over backwards to try to get that connector correct. Uh, and it should be the best plug-and-play solution overall. There were others out there that had build issues where sometimes they'd be fine and sometimes you'd lose an audio channel, it would stop working. Um, and then there's other ones out there that offer some different options, but that's definitely the one that I would recommend at the moment. You could go with an internal option, which is a lot of work, but if you're somebody that, that really just wants everything in one solution nice and compact, that might be kind of the best way to go about doing it. Um, but overall, that's kind of what I would suggest is unless you know that you can't use a plug and play solution, I would recommend the Carby and try to get one that's either used with the latest firmware or brand new, which has the latest firmware. Also, um, you had mentioned if there are any PS2 HDMI mod kits in the works. Yeah, the Pixel FX team had talked about it. However, we're in the midst of a brutal global part shortage where FPGAs are over 10 times the price of what they used to be and what they should be. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't expect that anytime soon. I hope I'm wrong, but I think it's a, a fair and realistic thing to say don't, don't expect that anytime soon. Turned Toast had some questions about Dreamcast output options. I did a couple of deep dive videos about this a few years ago, so I'm going to recommend you check out those for all of the info, probably more info than you need. Uh, but to skip to the end of your question, there's a bunch of games that won't work via RGB output, 31 kilohertz, and there's a couple of tricks to force them to getting to work, but some just won't work no matter what you do. And then there are a few that will only work via composite in S-Video, not RGB, although I think there are patches available to make those RGB compatible. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where I would just really research exactly which game does what. You mentioned one Japanese game that only outputs 480p over RGB, but I don't think that's possible because that's a physical switch limitation in the Dreamcast. Uh, but if you have the game and some, some documentation, I'd certainly like to take a look at it. 
Um, the other thing that you mentioned was that you have a 480p CRT monitor and something else connected to the Toro at the same time. And when you turn both of them on, you get some interference on one of them. I thought the Toro was supposed to be a discrete output solution, meaning you can safely have both connected. Um, I thought it had the circuitry for that, but I could be wrong. It's been years since I uh, since I reviewed the Toro, so I would double check. If you see if you see all of the inputs going through a video chip, um, then the signal is amplified and safe to output through both. I guess another way to test is have one solution working and the other one unplugged from the Toro. If you plug in the second solution and the first solution gets dimmer, you can't have them both connected at the same time. And that's actually a pretty good all-around suggestion for that. So I would give that a try and see what happens. Christopher Deo is using an Otaku SCART switch that has two outputs, but Christopher is never using both video outputs at the same time, which is good because the Otaku switch offers the choice of both, but they're just connected to each other. So it's a convenience. You get the choice of which connector you would prefer, but you can't have two video signals connected to it, even if only one is powered on because it would put double the load on the source. Um, they always swap the SCART and RCA video when they're switching between capturing and playing under PVMs. Good call. But they do leave the RCA audio hooked up while capturing video and audio through the SCART plug. They, uh, Christopher's heard me say a million times I could split audio. They're assuming this is the same thing. Yes, you've, you've listened perfectly. I've seen your setup. You've got a cool setup, and that is exactly safe. Now, there's always some audio file that wants to actually be in the comments, whereas, yes, there is a chance that you could get pops and clicks. There's a chance you might get a hum, but there is zero chance of you damaging equipment by using Y splitters, Y cables, Y circuits with audio. You're not going to damage anything. And if anybody has any doubts about that, please see the video I did with Steve from HD Retrovision, where we put everything on a scope. So we demonstrate without a shadow of a doubt that this is safe. Now, of course, there's always the usual gutches. If you take your audio connector and plug it into your light socket, that, you know, that's different. We're talking about standard audio outputs from, from audio equipment type of things. So yeah, your setup's totally cool. And if you're interested in the nerdy side of things, definitely watch the video I did with Steve because I, I was fascinated during his whole section of it. Steadicam Scott said they enjoyed my interview with Pat from the Shiro crew, and one topic that we mentioned but Scott wanted more info on is best methods for cleaning records. They have two records that are full of clicks and pops and wanted to know about cleaning options. They've seen people use ultrasonic cleaners to clean records. Is this good for the records or just a standard record cleaner with a turn wheel and a bath of cleaning solution is better? It would be something they'd probably use for more than the, just the two records they have problems with. Well, as always, there's going to be two, two answers to this question. First and foremost, are you planning on eventually investing in a very nice player and especially a nice head? Because you could end up in a situation where you have a $500 player that's beautiful and then eventually upgrade to a $1,200 head and then spend $500 more to have somebody weigh it and calibrate it. And if that's the case, you're going to want to go nuts. The project cleaning box I have is amazing. Uh, you basically put it on the, uh, its own turntable. You hold the brush on it with some fluid, uh, and then it vacuums it all up. And when you're done, you could see the grossness come out of these records. Um, I would recommend that if you're going to buy a player that's 500 or up. If you're starting to get into more expensive heads, 
then I would look into also getting an ultrasonic cleaner. Now, the good news is you mostly have to do this once. You clean the record, you put it in the specialized sleeves, which I think I, I've, I'll leave links to that. I must have forgot to in the um, interview with Pat in, in the links in the description. But you put them in the correct sleeves, and then everything else, you probably never have to worry about it again, unless it specifically gets dirty again. But that that is like the extreme option if you really want to take good care of your records. Uh, I got that as a gift, so I I was able to... Um, I was able to really enjoy it without wondering if I had spent too much money on it. But I got to say, after owning it, uh, I would, now I would spend the money on it, considering how much money I, I invested in my audio setup, which may or may not be underwater by the time this video is over. <laughs> um, but on the flip side, right, you get yourself a used $100 player or less. You get a cheap $8 head to make sure you don't ruin your records. Don't go spend $1,000 on cleaners. Get yourself exactly what you just described. Um, all, you know, just the basic record cleaning and wipe stuff and just try to keep them in decent condition. And you're never going to get rid of pops completely, but there are absolutely easier ways to, or, or ways to keep them maintained and stuff like that. So I'll make sure to get the correct links in this description. I'll try to go back and add them to the interview with Pat, but that's a great question. And it's one that does seem to make way more of a difference than I thought. I mean, cleaning a dirty record is kind of obvious. Everybody could visualize that, you know, microscopic crap sitting in the grooves. But I didn't realize it would make that big of a difference. Uh, and the only other thing is if any of your records are cracked, don't play them anymore. Because every, eventually the needle's going to get stuck in that and rip out. If you have an $8 head, not really a big deal. If you have a $1,200 head that you just spent somebody to calibrate then that's going to be a nightmare and terrifying. So yeah, excellent question. And I'll make sure to get good links for you so that you have everything that you need. Craig M has an interesting issue that I'm not 100% sure the answer to. They just picked up a VGA CRT monitor and they're loving it for PC gaming. It's a Dell M992 and it could do up to 1600 by 1200 at 75 hertz. It's awesome. However, when they're running the Nintendo Switch into it via 720p, it always appears blurrier, especially with text or 2D graphics. Um, so that's an issue that I've run into before, and I don't know if it's Visa versus HDTV resolutions. I'm not sure if it's uh, HDMI color space. It could be the DAC that you're using. Um, it could be a whole bunch of different things, but I've heard people talk about that before, and I was really interested to see if anybody else has an opinion on this or an easy fix for just generic VGA PC CRT monitors. The one thing that I will add is running it at 720p versus 1080p isn't going to be a massive difference. You are filling more information on the screen, but it's pixels versus scan lines. So the way the image is drawn is going to be a little bit different, but I guess I would try tweaking some of the settings. I could try, I would try recommending a different HDMI to VGA converter to make sure that the color space is in the right spot. But this is one of those things that I think needs a much better deep dive video on. So if any of you have any suggestions on where to start, please let me know. I'd love to get to it at some point because I have a couple of VGA monitors I love. And I think it'd be very cool to show, you know, an average VGA monitor, how it would work with modern consoles. Obviously, if you have like an FW900 widescreen one, that's much easier. But how to put 16 by 9 consoles on a 4 by 3 monitor would probably be a pretty decent idea. So I'm going to have to defer this question until next time. But if anybody else has any thoughts, please let me know because I'd be interested in what other people have done and where I should also test. 
Shurjur Steinholm just saw my post on replacement shells for the Nintendo 64, and they were wondering if I knew anyone making replacement shells for the N64 power supplies. Would be neat to have them color matched. That's a good question. I'm not sure if anybody's doing that. However, um, I think at the very least, replacement shells could be done 3D printed. Now, you're not going to get those gorgeous clear plastic that you would get with really well-made injection molded. But at the very least, I think somebody out there has to have made a replacement supply in case you broke yours or for aftermarket stuff. So if anybody has any solid links, please let me know. But I don't know of anyone making the shells for the power supplies. I think it would be kind of neat, but it also would involve taking apart a power supply and then you know, that always just adds a different set of risk and issues to things. So cross your fingers and, and hope somebody's out there with one. But I think this is going to be more of a 3D printed solution. Oliver Clare wanted to follow up on the Wii Mini announcement on the weekly roundup. They never really got into online multiplayer on private servers with the Wii because back when they soft modded theirs, it was always recommended to turn off the Wi-Fi once the homebrew channel was installed. From hazy memory, this was because if the Wii had soft mods installed and was left connected to the internet, it would try to force a firmware update in the background, which could undo all of the soft modding work. Do you know if this is still an issue for regular Wiis which have been modded now that the Wii online store is closed? And if so, could the Wii, the Wi-Fi mod for the Wii Mini be the answer to safely using Homebrew online? <clears throat> so I'm going by memory. So there's a very good chance that, uh, that I'm wrong, especially being in a high-stress situation over there. But I'm pretty sure years ago there was an option that you could set after you've soft-modded to block all online updates. On top of that... If you were already on the latest version of the firmware, there would not be another update, so you wouldn't have to worry about it. So I think it would be completely safe to do today, no matter what. But just go in and check the extra settings. And I'm 99.9% positive in one of those steps where if you go the step-by-step soft modding, it brings you to a menu that allows you to select whether you would like to do that or not, whether you would like to... um, to disable updates, as well as a whole bunch of other very cool options. So I would just kind of go through and double check, but I'm pretty sure that's possible. Elwood15 is interested in doing some cable management to a gaming setup that consists of analog sources from the Wii all the way back to NES and Genesis. This setup was just integrated into an existing one with newer consoles, and they were wondering what the do and don'ts of managing video cables alongside power supply cables and Ethernet cables are. Should they worry about grouping them together? Uh, Would that cause any kind of video signal issues or anything like that? First and foremost, if you're using well-built shielded cables, there should not be any issues whatsoever. But, I mean, analog video is weird. That's not really how real life works. So I would just... You know, I would just make sure that your cable management is kind of neat. And when I say kind of neat, you don't need to OCD wire strap everything the entire path of the way, although that does look cool, and make it a nightmare to ever swap stuff out. I just would make sure you don't have like a wad of, of crappy frayed AC cables wrapped around your video cables. So I would just do decent wire management, and then I would go back from there and say, okay, what's happening now? Do all the consoles look perfect? cool, I'm done. Am I getting a weird hum on one and not the other? All right, unplug the cable, wrap it all the way around the other side and separate it from the rest. Does the hum go away? If not, is that just how the console sounds? So the do's and don'ts are basically just don't make a nightmarish mess of it and do use shielded cables and do just double check to see if you have any issues. If you have any problems, let me know and I can try to elaborate a little bit more. 
Couple from Jason Guffey. First, what do I do, if anything, as a temporary or long-term storage for e-waste? So what do I do with basic things like dead batteries and emptying cartridges? Do I chuck them in a box or bin until it's full? Where do I take my actual e-waste chunk and all of that stuff? So for batteries and, and, and stuff like that, I for, well, for toner, I send it back in the box because there's always the return label. I don't have an inkjet printer anymore. I don't remember what I used to do with those. I think I may have thrown those out, which I know isn't good. I just always forgot. For batteries, I think I vaguely remember there was like a battery drop bin, but I almost exclusively use rechargeable Eneloops now. So I don't, that's never really an issue for me either. Uh, I guess maybe if there's like an old remote battery, but I think almost everything's been moved to Eneloops. But that's a good question. Uh, as far as PC equipment, that's something that I'm still working on now because I have a whole bunch of stuff that's, if I had the time, I could put it all on eBay and part it out to people and make a decent amount of money, but I have zero free time. So I don't want to just give it to an e-waste place that's going to strip it and make a bunch of money off of it. I was hoping to drop it off at a place that might swap some stuff around. So if I have a pile of old laptops and hard drives and components, maybe they'll allow me to pick up like... I don't know, like something for free. So hopefully, you know, an old CRT, whatever. So I'm still really looking for either a PC repair shop or an e-waste place that would help me out with that. Um, but for people locally, I would just look up e-waste in your area because there's a lot of places that would do that. But yeah, for me personally, I, I would just have a box um, and throw everything in there and then deal with it when the time comes. And for batteries, just, you know, make sure the contacts aren't touching anything, whatever else. But it's not something I worry about too, too much, especially if it's a waste box. You know, if the batteries start to leak and you're inside a plastic box, you know, it's not the end of the world. Next, they have a DVD-VCR combo that they'd like to integrate into their entertainment setup, but the only spot they have for it is across the room from the rest of their video stuff, like scalers, splitters, etc. They could run component cables across the floor, but they would really prefer something wireless if that's even possible. They have various devices they could use to convert its output to a digital signal, and they figured display lag wouldn't matter for non-interactive media. I've never had good luck with it, ever. And in fact, I remember early, like 2010-ish, I remember a company coming to my company and doing a demo in the boardroom about how great their wireless video devices were. And I like turned on the microwave in the other room and their video went nuts. And, and I know it was a dick move, but I've always, I've always been able to break wireless connections, I guess is the best way to say it. And even when I wasn't intentionally proving that there could be interference, there's always been something. Even wireless headset I used to use when uh, I was in a studio apartment and I didn't want to wake my wife up, I'd have the wireless RF headphones on and occasionally they would just crackle. I'm sure like a truck went by with a CB radio or something. So if you have the ability to try it out or you could return the adapters if they don't work, go for it, but uh, have low expectations. Lastly, they know most people will generally tell you to turn all the post-processing options in your displays off for lag purposes when playing games. However, they've noticed that even with scalers involved, they sometimes enjoy the look of slight sharpness increase from their TV. They have yet to have issues, but they mostly only played PS2 turn-based RPGs this way, so they don't know if they'll see lag problems with faster games. So the question is, when it comes to adding lag, is increasing sharpness always measurably bad, or does it vary by TV and implementation like a lot of these things do? Uh, varies by TV, and in fact, I went back and retested a bunch of TVs recently and found that adding sharpness to 100 did not change the lag at all at the five TVs that I tested. So there's a few things to note about this. First and foremost, 
turn-by-turn RPGs, whatever whatever settings or scalers you want, lag is probably not going to be affected. However, this is one of the many reasons I would like owning a Time Sleuth, because you could just try this stuff. Um, but shockingly enough, I have not found sharpness to affect lag at all in, in the past three or four years, including my 2016 OLED. But I feel like I tested a TV back then that did have an issue, so you really got to try it in order to, uh, to figure it out. It is that edge enhancement fake sharpness thing. But sometimes it looks really cool. I mean, the 4K Gamer Pro is proof of that. Sometimes I thought that was a really awesome look. Not all the time, but definitely. So if you're really concerned, get a lag testing device. But if you have a newer TV, it just might not be an issue at all. Robert Melee Jr. said they recently acquired a mini CRT arcade, and they're looking to fix it up and put a Raspberry Pi in it. It's the same one I made a video on, and they watched both the mini MVS and mini Mr. Cade videos, but they still have a few questions about it. First, do I have any recommendations for LED arcade buttons? Uh, nope, but I would go to like Paradise Arcade Shop or a bunch of the other ones that are known for selling good components and see what they have. And I would always check on different arcade-based forums or Discord servers just to make sure that what you're getting is kind of higher quality. But you should be able to do that. Is a separate PSU needed? Keep in mind they're only adding a Raspberry Pi 3 with a powered USB to hub and Arduino for the LED buttons. I don't think so. I think that power supply in there was pretty crappy, but... It was good enough for the CRT, so I only added a separate power supply, both because I wanted to make sure that the Mr. Cade and the Neo Geo board were working properly, but also so I had the option of swapping it out with any other arcade board I put in. If I was using a Raspberry Pi, or maybe maybe even just the Mr., I would have left it, I would have at least tried to leave the stock power supply in there, because you don't need too many amps, so... I think I would try the internal one anyway for a Raspberry Pi and then see what happens. Next, the CRT seems to be in good condition, except when the screen gets brighter, the image gets squashed on the sides and stretched at the top and bottom. They reduce the brightness, which helps, but it still happens on completely white screens. Any tips on fixing this? And Would this call for a recap? Uh, well, those machines... You're probably going to have to recap it at some point. Neither machine needed a recap. I did one... I can't remember if I did both... But when I did the recap, it did nothing. Uh, what you got to understand is arcade machines were essentially designed for one game at a time. So they would bring up the test patterns, they would scan it over scan so uh, you couldn't see the edges of it. And then in game, maybe a few things were cut off, but you wouldn't be able to see that pulsating, the bloom, whatever you want to call it. Um, but when you have a multi-kid setup like this, it's very noticeable. So I would just... I would just appreciate it as some of the nuances of CRT gaming and kind of roll with it. Uh, if you were, if that really bothers you, you could do something like rebuild another one based off of a PVM and do it that way. But I, I kind of just learned to love it and, and kind of looked at it as an authentic experience because the CRT was still pretty good. Speaking of recap, do I have a list of capacitors for this machine that you could use? If you had asked me that two years ago, I could have been able to send you my DigiKey list or something, but the last time I went to look, every cap that I had previously ordered was out of stock with no replacement in sight. So you would essentially have to redo everything from scratch. I'll see if I could try to find the list, um, and I'll, I'll DM you directly, but I think... and. I've seen two of those machines have slightly different caps. So I think you're probably going to want to go through and make your own cap list and double check the board number revision and everything else. But there weren't an excessive amount. You could do it in like an hour. 
Um, but yeah, times have certainly changed with components. So uh, I'll see if I could find it. Maybe we could both upload it to the wiki. Next, they've never used the RGB Pi OS before. They've only used RetroPie. Is the RGB Pie capable of dual output through the HDMI connector and the JAMA? No, I don't think so. Um, you might want to double check with them. And also, is the RGB Pi capable of using the 3.5 millimeter composite jack if they wanted to connect it to a separate CRT TV? Don't know. Um, you would have to ask them. You got to go into their Discord, and I got to be blunt. There's like half the people there are amazing. Will stop and help you. Are polite. I, I can't even. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate the nice people on their Discord server. But the person who runs it is a troll, and so is a lot of the other people. And they love drama, and they love shitting on people, and they love making fun of people. So every time I've gone in there to ask a very legitimate question, it was always the same. I ask a question. Somebody fucks with me. Somebody dogpiles. Somebody else ignores those two and gives me a real answer. And then that's how it progresses. It's myself and two other people having a real conversation with a bunch of fucking losers in there and that we just blatantly ignore. So I left the server. I left any server where the people run it think that that's an okay thing to do. I have zero extra time. And any moment that I'm going to spend is not going to be to somebody like that or, or even to a Discord like that. So I'm not saying it to, to shit on them. I'm saying it because... There are great people there that will help you answer these questions, but you have to, I just, you got to know what you're getting yourself into. So, you know, to have a glass of tea, take a deep breath, be patient, and, uh, and you know, good luck dealing with that. Uh, finally, do I have any documentation for this arcade machine? No, there isn't shit out there. I was all on my own when I did it. I replaced a whole bunch of potentiometers, different types of capacitors, trying to recenter the signal and there's nothing out there. The only thing that you could do is buy a replacement chassis. So you basically gut the whole thing. You know, I probably should have, I hope you made it to the end of the question before, um, before, uh, buying anything. But one thing that you might want to do is look into a replacement chassis for that tube that's compatible with it, because you might save a lot of time and money and effort by pulling out everything that's in there putting a brand new chassis in, which might be a couple hundred bucks, but it'll come with new capacitors on it, and it'll come with more calibration options so that you could do things like stretch it a little better so you don't see the pulsating and, you know, and all that stuff. So, no, there's no documentation at all on that chassis. So I would just say if, if, if you feel like, I guess my final recommendation is if you get all this done and you're totally happy with it. Cool. Love it for what it is. But if these extra things bug you, instead of recapping, looking at, look into getting a different chassis for it. And that might open up a bunch more different options for you and, you know, a few other things. So hopefully I was able to get through all your questions properly. Um, if I missed anything or if I misunderstood anything, uh, please give me a pass this week and just re-ask and I'll be able to help out. One last question from Oliver Claire. Oliver, I got to ask you a favor, my friend. Re-ask this next week. Copy and paste the same thing because your question is about routing G switches through a cross point, what converters you need, would you really want to do this? Is there a good way to route them together? And that is exactly what I'm going through as well. So, I I just unless you're in a super rush to do this, I feel like waiting another week or so and giving you an answer based on my actual testing and results would be a little bit more helpful than me pondering for 10 minutes and thinking, well, maybe we could do this. And the one thing that I'm worried about is loopback. So, and this one's confusing. So everybody take a deep breath. 
let's say I have a Super Nintendo outputting RGB going into input one of the cross point. Outputs three, five, and seven are two RGB monitors and the RGB to comp. How could I route the RGB to comp back into the cross point and then out to a monitor plugged into output 12 or something? I've been reading up, and supposedly you need to do that with software. Somebody said you could probably program it to use the front buttons. I thought using two, two cross points might be easier, but that opens up a whole other long list of problems. So if anybody has actually done that, not read up, no offense, not read up on it, not have a friend that said they did it, but actually done a loopback successfully, let me know, uh, and I would love to, to, to duplicate it and then hopefully document it some way. Um, but yeah, uh, it, you know, if it's super, if it's a rush, Oliver, just DM me, but that's a question that I would love to know the answer to. And I would love to give you a real world example of how to solve that problem in the best way. So, uh, sorry for skimming it this week, but my intentions are good. I promise. Well, everybody, that's it for this week. It's still leaking. Plumber's still on his way. I turned off all the water. Uh, I don't know. I'm scared shitless. I worked my butt off to be able to get here. I worked seven days a week for like five, six, seven years. I'm finally here, and I have a feeling that I might actually be washing my ceiling <laughs> cave in on top of all of my equipment. Hopefully I'm being dramatic and exaggerating. Hopefully I'm just scared, and by next week I'll have a nice update with just a little patch on the ceiling. And oh yeah, just, you know, the dishwasher leaked once. But yeah, this looks bad. This looks like I'm going to have to cut open the ceiling and do a ton of work, so... Please, uh, you know, please cross your fingers for me and hope for the best. And uh, I guess I'll update pictures when I have some solid news on this. So whew, a little crazy that it happened in the midst of recording this. And, um, you know, I'll post on social media when the, just to show progress. Um, yeah. And if any of my questions or if any of my answers this week were accidentally rude or snippy or I got something majorly wrong, please find it in your hearts to give me a pass. I wanted to keep doing this both because... Uh, I love giving back to the people that contribute to me. And also it was kind of helpful trying to get my mind off of this, even though I could hear the constant dripping over, over my shoulder. Oh boy. Fingers crossed everybody.